Well, if you're here this morning, you will know that we were studying Moses and Moses' call by God to deliver Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Now, Pharaoh was rather reluctant to let them go. So God visited a whole series of plagues on the people of of Egypt. And finally, Moses gets to lead the children of Israel away from the clutches of Pharaoh. It's been 215 years since the Israelites had gone into Egypt. 215 years. 215 years that they'd been away from their homeland. And the majority of that time, they'd been slaves. And here now in this passage, they stand on the banks of the Red Sea. But Pharaoh changes his mind. Pharaoh is now closing in on the Israelites and they're frightened. They're faced with a dilemma. There are several choices before them, but none of them are good. We know about dilemmas, don't we? Perplexing decisions that we have to make. You stand there in the morning and open your wardrobe and it's ram jam full of clothes and you've got nothing to wear. (laughs) Or you pick up a menu in a restaurant. It's got pages and pages and pages, but there's nothing to eat. Dilemmas. There don't seem to be any, any good choices. Well, in Exodus 14 and verse 10, there is a horrible dilemma that faces the children of Israel. They were facing a dead end. The sea was on one side and the Egyptians were closing in on the other side. Let me just read you again verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses... Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They could see the dilemma before them. They could see four alternatives. They could stand where they were and get killed. Or they could fight and get killed. Or they could swim and get killed. Or they could surrender and go back into slavery. Three of those four alternatives lead to certain death. And unpalatable as it was, the only option that they could see was to go back as slaves again into Egypt. But we know there was a fifth alternative. But funny enough, they never contemplated it. Why? Because they have subconsciously decided that God couldn't act. So they were on their own. I want you to imagine for a moment that you were one of the journey planners that had been employed by the Israelites. 
And the journey planners were going to tell the Israelites about the journey. And they hold a public meeting. And the journey planners say to them, well, guys, we're going to march out of Egypt towards the banks of the Red Sea. And in front of you, there'll be this great expanse of water. And behind you, by the way, hordes of Egyptians will be chasing you. Then what? Ah, well, then the water will part and you'll just walk through. And what about the Egyptians? Well, they won't get through. They'll drown. Bit of a tough sell, wouldn't you think? Not the sort of logic that would have delivered anything other than a sceptical response. The story of the deliverance of the children of Israel here is one of a totally surprising path through a problem. And as they contemplated their dilemma, they couldn't have imagined in their wildest dreams what God was going to do for them. Now, we, of course, can sit here in hindsight and rebuke them for their lack of faith, just as I suspect future generations will do about us. But Moses could see what the Israelites couldn't see. He could see the facts as they saw them, but his conclusion was different. He had faith because he knew that God would fight for them. Listen to what Moses says in verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to stand still. Wow, that's faith, isn't it? Now, Moses hadn't been party to God's plan. God hadn't taken him aside and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. But he had been party to God's purposes. Not to God's plan of what he was going to do, but God's purposes of what God wanted to do. So he knew that God wanted to save his people. So he knew that he wouldn't let them be slaughtered on the banks of the Red Sea. There's a definition of faith which I quite like and it's sort of stuck with me and it's this. The definition of faith is believing despite the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Believing despite the evidence and then watching the evidence change. And God, Moses knew God. He knew what God's purposes were. And he had learned firsthand in dealing with Pharaoh and the plagues that God was able to do amazing things. So Moses was waiting for just one more miracle. What he'd learned in his dealings with God is not to expect the easy way out. There were many occasions when God could have done things very differently and much more easily. He could have just softened Pharaoh's heart rather than hardening it. And don't you think that's what the Israelites have been praying for day by day? Lord, soften Pharaoh's heart. That's our prayer. Soften Pharaoh's heart. How many of them would have prayed, Lord, harden Pharaoh's heart and then show him who's boss? It's not the sort of prayer they'd have prayed. But Moses learnt that God's way is not our way. 
but that God's purpose is unshakable. So what was God doing in this? Well, he was engineering glory for himself. That's what this is all about. He was about humiliating his enemies. He was doing something which the whole world would talk about for centuries to come. What a fantastic place these people, these Israelites, would have in history. What a miracle they would experience and what stories they would be able to tell their children. So why didn't they want to be part of it? Well, it wasn't they didn't want to be part of it. It was just they had no idea that it would happen. Their view was so limited that they couldn't see beyond the ordinary and the predictable. Theoretically, they believed in the power of God. But they believed it second-hand. They believed it from past stories. But for themselves, they hadn't actually experienced it. I guess, tucked up in bed in Goshen, they could rejoice at the misery being inflicted by God on the Egyptians through the plagues, but when it came to their own salvation, they had no faith. Because it had been 200 years since God had spoken and acted. If you put us in that situation, that's the equivalent of going back to Wesley and Whitfield. God had done nothing that they could see in the last 200 years. They had little evidence of the power of God. So what they worshipped was a memory, a tradition, but it wasn't worship from the reality of their own experience. So when it came to putting their neck on the lines, they said, no way. But here's the wonder of God. Despite their unbelief, God did it anyway. With an outstretched arm, Moses parted the sea. Now that's not much of a miracle in comparison with the creation of the world and the creation of the universe. It's not much of a miracle. But when your neck's on the line, I think it's a pretty big deal. Look at the rejoicing that went on afterwards. Look at chapter 15, the song of Moses. All the doubting Thomases were doubters no more. Suddenly, they were free. They'd seen a miracle happen, and they were rejoicing. Suddenly, they weren't the forgotten generation anymore. No more would people just talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now they'd be talking about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. The world would talk about the mighty delivery God had done here in Egypt through the outstretched arm of Moses. They would talk about the parting of the waters and the drowning of the fearsome Egyptian army. You see, the Israelites came from the camp that we probably came from. They came from that famous camp of it never happens here. Do you notice that whenever people are interviewed on the television news about some tragedy that's happened in their locality, they all say the same thing. Nothing like that ever happens here. And you know, we can say the same. Great things happen elsewhere, but nothing like that ever come, happens here. I wonder if that's something which is almost a motto that we could have for our life. God does great things around the world, but nothing like that ever happens here. Well, you know, it just might. 
Let's have a look at the three ingredients that might cause that to happen. And they're here in this chapter. And the first ingredient is God's glory. A desire for God to display his glory. Look at what God says in verse 4. He says, I will gain through this glory for myself. And again in verse 18, Egypt will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh. God has a desire to show his glory. Second thing, first is glory. The second actually is our hopelessness. People are people who can do nothing for for themselves. That's That's where the Israelites were. They could do nothing for themselves. Their situation looked hopeless. Verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die here in the desert. Their situation was truly hopeless. But then the third ingredient, faith. Moses had learnt that God can do it. Burning bush, he was sceptical. But now he had learnt through experience that God can do it. His faith had grown and it was now larger than the size of a mustard seed. He had heard and he had seen God at work. So I wonder what characterises your attitude in the face of challenging circumstances. Are you defiant like Moses was? Or are you despondent like the children of Israel were? I love those people in the Old Testament who against the odds were utterly defiant. You read in Daniel chapter 3 of the uh, three men who were thrown into the fiery furnace. They were utterly convinced that God could save them. And listen to what they said to the king. They said, we know that God can save us, but even if he chooses not to, know this, O king, we will not bow down to you. Defiance. Because of faith in God. You know, sometimes we need a little bit of defiance, don't we? To face up the enemy of despondency. Standing up against all comers. Because God is on our side. Knowing that God hasn't delivered us from the bondage of sin just to rot in the stagnation of a despondent life. That's not God's purpose for us, is it? Even Elijah was despondent. He sat under a tree and he said, Woe is me. I must be the last. Sooner or later, but sooner, I better die. He just had enough. He was despondent. Where was his defiance and determination? Well, sometimes our situations do look hopeless. And if it is then the defiance in us says, hallelujah, God can do something about it. There's a great old hymn written by uh, Annie Johnson Flint. No relation, I guess, Annie. Annie Johnson Flint. And and, And the first line is, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. And it has these lines in it, which I love. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. 
When we have nothing left, then God gives. So when we're faced with dilemmas, where there seems to be no way out, let us learn that lesson from the Israelites. Let us leave room for the option that God might do something quite amazing. Just to end with, I want to share a story of an old missionary called John Patton. I'm sure some of you will have read his books. Uh, He was a Scottish missionary to the New Hebride Islands in in the South Pacific. And one night, natives surrounded his mission station. And they were intent on burning down the mission station and killing Patton and his family. So John Patton and his wife prayed during a terror-filled night. And they prayed that God would deliver them. And when daylight came, they were absolutely amazed to see that their attackers had gone. A year later, the chief of the tribe who'd been surrounding their mission station was converted to Christ. And so, remembering what happened on that terrifying night, John Patton asked this chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them all. And the chief replied with great surprise. He said, well, who were all those men who were with you? And Patton knew that there weren't any men with him. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he'd seen hundreds of big men in shining garments, with drawn swords, circling the mission station. When John Patton and his wife prayed, that wouldn't have been one of the answers to their prayer that they would have imagined. God knows the path that each one of us travels. And he he asks us, as we travel that path, Will we trust trust him for the inexplicable? Will we have the faith to trust him for the inexplicable? Will we believe despite the evidence and then watch the evidence change? Let's just pray together. Father God, we are amazed when we read stories in the Old Testament like the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt and like the deliverance of those three men in Daniel in the burning, fiery furnace. Father, we confess that we have no expectation that you would act in our situation and our lives like that. But you are the same God an unchanging God. And we pray that when we get to the end of our resources, we will know that you are the God who gives and gives and gives again. Lord, allow us to walk by faith and to expect you to do the unexpected. Lord, not just to bail us out, but to get glory for your name that the name of Jesus might be revered and lifted up through our experience and in our lives. Lord, help us in our weakness. 
Open our eyes, strengthen our arms, give us that defiant heart that knows that you are on our side. And as Moses said, God will fight for us. We thank you that you are a faithful and trustworthy God. In Jesus' name. Amen.